All right. Well, I want to get going tonight. I, I want to uh, just begin by saying that I have a, another lesson in our little series on the church. I, I wasn't sure when we ended last week if we were going to do another lesson on this series because I, uh, I didn't have one planned out, and I, but I didn't feel a red light. I didn't really feel like it was at the end. Um, so I kind of left you hanging, and, I, and so for that, you know, I apologize that you, you, you knew it will be about Jesus in one way or the other, so it's not true disappointment, but, um, and I still don't have a real red light, although I don't really know where I'm going next week, too, so we're kind of back in the same boat we were in last week, um, so let's just see where it lands tonight. Tonight will be a little different in that our subtitle is a question, and I really mean it when I put a question mark up. What I mean by that is that I really intend to get to the end and have simply asked the question. I don't intend to answer it, at least not definitively. I'm going to try to give an answer, I think, the way that the New Testament lays out possible answers. Um, this is not a trick. I really don't have an answer as to whether or not this is what we are supposed to do. I have some ideas. So when we get to the end tonight, I think we'll ask that question to the audience online um, they'll have some equipment to work with and some scriptures to work with and hopefully to wrestle out. I'm trying to engage those audiences more and more through other videos to really ask questions and really wrestle. Um, and then I want to do the same thing in this room to where we just turn everything off and hear what you have to say about this topic because I want to lay some stuff out for you tonight that, that very much sounds one way in response to this question, but there's some evidence that could go very much the other way. And if you're someone who likes to have all the yeses and nos when you ask Bible questions, then tonight's going to frustrate you because this is not a yes and a no. This is not a walk out and have all the answers, but you'll have some equipment. And so then there's no rights and wrong answers. It's just, well, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about what you just sat and heard? And how do you feel about the scriptures that you walked through? So um, let's get started in a text that sets us up. It's, as far as I'm concerned, it sets up the question... Um, because it shows us the end game, what I think is perhaps the end game, according to the Apostle Paul, not just for the church, but for the world at large. Lately, I've had two or three verses that are really, really working on me. And they're working on me in different reasons and for different ways. And, and, and I don't know what all of those are. But whenever that starts to happen, I try to pay a little closer attention. This is one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. There's a lot of things that are happening in this text that I, I don't want to ignore them because they're not important. I just don't want to dig into them because we don't really know everything Paul means. Like for instance, what does Paul mean that someday the son will be subject to God as if he's already not subject to God? We're not, we're not really sure where Paul's trying to go with that. He really makes it sound like there's going, to come, there's going to come a day when Jesus is done with the mediatorial role. There's no longer any reason for him to mediate between God and man. And therefore, he just simply becomes much like the rest of the church body and all of us underneath the headship of God. I'll leave that alone. That's over my head. I don't know that any of us really know what that looks like. But the part of this that jumps at me is the last phrase, that God may be all in all. Look at that. Now, I don't know what it means to you, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll just tell you what it means to me. 
I think Paul is laying out for us this idea that at some point, somewhere in the future, God will not just be God to all men. God will be God in all men. That God will be all in all. And that means that the end of the game is where God becomes every single thing in us. And I know that that should prompt 20 questions as to what does that mean about salvation? What does that mean about heaven? What does that mean about hell? I'm not prepared to answer what it means. I'm just fascinated with what it says, that God will be all in all. I believe that God will do exactly what Paul thinks he will do. God will himself be all in all. And I think Paul could be saying this, Next one. We're all on our way. We're on our way to all things made subject to him. And I put these in quotes because that's from the verse. And to God being all in all. God will be all of who he is. And he will be that in all of who we are. And only God can be all in all. Only God has the end game destination of being all that God is inside of all that we are. I'm bringing all that I am to God. God is presenting all that he is to me. And we do this most of the time. We butt heads at best. I'm, I'm trying to get me out of the way. I'm trying to receive more of who he is. Let him burn out of me whatever doesn't belong. Ultimately, the end game is God wants to be all in all inside of Paul White. He wants to be all of God in me. I want him to be all of God in me. You want him to be all of God in you. And we're going there. And, and for Paul, it's an end of the, it seems like an end of, it, of all things scenario. That someday God will be all in all. But, but also that only God can do that. That only God can be all in all. Which might mean that only God can be all to all. What I need from you and what you need from me. Maybe you can be that for me, and maybe I can be that for you, but I can't be all that you need me to be. I can't even be all that my wife needs me to be, and we are one you, because I'm limited, and I'm unable to fulfill all that an outsider needs of me, much less all God needs of me. And therefore, at the end, God is the only one who can be all for me that I need. And I wonder if it's asking more than should ever be asked for me to be more to anyone else than I can possibly be. And yet, that's our striving. That's sort of our goal is to be all that we can be for every person we can be that for. Um, it's one of the taglines of one of our branches of the U.S. military be all that you can be. What does that mean? Well, I think their goal is to try to show you that you can be more than you think you can be and that you need to be all of it that you can possibly be. And it makes for a great tagline. But what if where be all you can be starts to become be all other people need you to be? And if you try to be all other people need you to be, you can burn out pretty fast. And you can find that you can't be what others need for you to be. Well, same guy that writes this in 15, 
writes this in 9 from 1 Corinthians. Paul says this in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. 21. To those who are without law, as without law, Paul felt the need to put a parenthetical here, not being without law towards God, but under, and this is a little cleaner in the Greek, but under the law of Christ. In other words, not as if I ignore God's law, but placing myself under what Paul considered a bigger law, the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Just think about some of these that Paul puts out there. To the Jewish, I became Jewish. To the law keeper, I become a law keeper. To the lawless, I became lawless. Interestingly, to the weak, I even became weak. Some of this is self-abasement. Some of this is knocking your, putting yourself down a peg or two. Some of this is stepping outside your own tradition because he's a Jewish lawkeeper or he was raised as a Jewish lawkeeper. Some of this he thinks is almost crossing the line because he puts the parenthetical in to the guy without the law. I became like a guy without the law. He goes, oh, by the way, I didn't actually live as if I didn't have law. I just put myself under the law of Christ. As you see Paul trying to explain himself and then the famous phrase, I became all I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this sentence right here, I have become all things to all men that I by all means might save some has become almost a mandate among ministry. And we use this when we teach people to minister or we teach pastors or we teach leaders and we say, hey, Bible says we're supposed to be all things to all men. I've heard it quoted that way. Bible says we're supposed to be all things to all men. By the way, the Bible does not say we're supposed to be all things to all men. The Bible says Paul tried to be all things to all men. So I think you can see where I'm going with the question tonight. Paul tried to be all things to all men. Paul tried to be Jewish when he's around Jewish people. He tried to be law keeper when he's around law keeper. He was weak when he was around weak people. He was not a law keeper when he was around people that were not a law keeper. And so I ask you these questions. Paul says, I've become all things to all men. Here's how we start some of these questions tonight. Is this a mandate? Does the church attempt to live this out as having, quote unquote, something for everyone? So I want to postulate a little theory here that one of the things that the church, the modern church is trying to do is provide a little something for everyone because the church is functioning under the idea that they're supposed to be all things for all men. They're supposed to be really good at children's church. They're supposed to be really good at youth ministry. They're supposed to be really good with young people. They're supposed to have great middle age ministry. They're supposed to have great senior adult ministry. They're supposed to be wonderful with music. They're supposed to be great with preaching. They're supposed to be good with teaching, great at street evangelism, great at international evangelism, great at missions work, great at feeding the homeless, great at visiting the hospital. And we just keep categorizing all of these things that we're supposed to do really, really well. And what we found is that you can go in any given church and they do a couple things really well and they do a bunch of stuff not well at all, but they just keep doing all the stuff they're not good at because I think we're dwelling under this almost unwritten rule that we're supposed to be all things to all people. 
And that part of the reasoning for that, I think, is because we've taken what Paul said about being all things to all men, and we've taken it to be some sort of mandate. I want to say to you that I don't think Paul's giving us instructions. I think Paul's giving us a confession. I think Paul might be confessing, hey, I try to be everything I can to every person in every room I enter. And listen, I tip my cap to him because um, he picks some stuff, he puts some stuff in that list that ain't easy. Like for instance, almost no one would choose to be weak when they're around weak people. That's absolutely opposite of the way we think you should act around weak people. We think you should dominate and assert strength so that weak people will have leadership in their lives and do something better. Paul goes, if you're weak, I'll be weak with you. So I don't even claim we can keep up with Paul. I'm not even, I don't think we're in the same ballpark. But I'm not sure we're supposed to be. I'm not sure the call is for me to be everything you need me to be. I'm not sure that the call, let's make it corporate. I'm not sure that the call of the church is to be everything that everything needs them to be. Um, I've dealt with a lot of pastors, a lot of churches as they've transitioned into grace-based ministry where they're, they're trying to, and I, I think everybody that's listening knows what I'm talking about, so I'll not be coy. Um, they're trying to become grace preachers and grace churches, and so they're trying to move away from performance and beating people up with rules and laws and backsliding every week. And so they're, they're trying to uh, transition. Transition is a good word. And they don't even know sometimes where they're going. They just know they can't keep doing what they're doing. So I can't keep preaching what I'm preaching. I don't have any idea what this is going to do, but I'm already losing people. This is the first thing that happens. I'm losing people because some people don't want to be a part of that. They want hellfire and brimstone and preach on sin every time you come in. And, uh, and, then I, and then that's step one, by the way. Step one is losing people. And then step two is I'm getting weirdos. I'm getting some weirdos coming in here. I'm getting some people that, that are living weird lifestyles and they're, they're acting odd. And they, these people don't know anything about church. And they're coming in here and they love this God loves you message. And they love this grace message. But I don't, what am I supposed to do with these people? They don't know anything about how to worship. They don't know anything about prayer. They don't know, some of them don't even own a Bible. They won't study, you know. And so that's always kind of like step two is what I do because here comes this. And, and the funny, almost not ha, not ha ha funny, but the irony is, is that almost every one of those churches bragged about wanting to be a place where everyone could come in and feel comfortable. Their entire ministry, they've been going, yo, we just want to be a place where everybody can come in here and meet Jesus. And the second the weirdos start coming in to, to meet Jesus, they're like trying to shut the doors and change the rules and turn the lights off and move down the street because we didn't really want them to come in here to find Jesus. We just want them to feel like they could if they ever wanted to, you know, after they changed. Um, and so I'm discovering that. And so once that's kind of, we work through some of that, well, then what happens is you've, you've shed some of the baggage. So you, you kind of trim the fat, people that were there for all the wrong reasons. You've picked up a new crew, and you're starting to learn to adjust to that. But it doesn't feel right to do church the same way anymore. You know, it just doesn't feel right because sometimes, because the new people you got don't know what church used to be anyway. And the people you got that's been liberated from the church they used to have don't want to go back to the kind of church they used to have. And so now we're having to reimagine how we worship, and we're having to reimagine what preaching looks like, and we're having to reimagine. And so I'm in constant seasons of transitions with pastors and churches. 
getting a lot of questions about well, what should we do? It doesn't feel like it used to feel. It doesn't, doesn't seem the same way. And, and one of the things I'm having to wrestle out in my own spirit is what to say to these men and women, because first of all, I take it very serious. I don't just want to throw out cheap advice. They call you up and go, hey, this is where we are with our church. And you don't just want to throw out experimental stuff. Yeah, you know, try this, throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. You're talking about people's actual churches and livelihoods and their lives and, and, and you don't want to be an experimental. And so what I'm starting to wrestle out, and I think it's kind of where some of this lesson came from, is that um, rather than trying to be what we think we should be, maybe we should be what we can be to the ones God gives us. Okay, so you got 12 people in the room, or you got 1,200 people in the room, or you got a bunch of people who've never been to church, but they keep coming because they love the atmosphere and they love, love God. Every room is different. Every room, every body is different. Some of them are churched out the gills, man, and that's all they know. And any other way isn't going to feel right to them and they want some of that. Others are so anti-church that they have PTSD on anything that looks remotely like religion and they don't want to touch it. They don't want to be near it. They'll get up and walk out on you. Um, I've seen, I'm seeing all of that. And sometimes you got that in the same room and man, that becomes difficult to navigate. But rather than trying to go through the checklist, you know, 12 things that makes us a church, maybe we should wad up the checklist and throw it out and realize that we are not called to be all things to all men. Maybe. We are called to be exactly who we are and be what we can be to the very ones God puts in front of us. And that maybe if we could accept that as good enough, we could be content with what we have rather than always wishing we had something else, wishing we had this other ministry, wishing we could grow in this area. Um, I can't tell you the ministers and pastors that contact me and go, you know, we need this in our church. We need, we need a youth department. I'll go, why do you need a youth department? How many youth do you have? Oh, we got one or two. I go, well, it doesn't sound like you need a youth department. It sounds like you need youth. I mean, if that's your goal is to get young people. I mean, my, my point there is that sometimes we're doing things. We're out here buying fleets of buses because we went to a conference that talked about busing people into their church. And so we thought, well, you know what we need in our church? Four buses. So we go buy four buses that set in rust in the parking lot until all the tires go flat because we don't have that. That's not what God's put us in. Is bus ministry relevant? Well, somewhere it is. To somebody, it's not just relevant, it's essential. Um, and so is youth ministry, and so is music ministry, and so is teaching ministry. So maybe instead of trying to be everything to everybody, we got to be what we can to who's put in front of us. Let me try to clean this Pauline thing up because I think it's a little wordy in the New King James. Listen to Eugene Peterson say this in the message. I just think this is really well done. This is the same passage of Scripture. Even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I've voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists. I like that. That's good. Loose living immoralists, <laughs> the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and I tried to experience things from their point of view. 
I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a good, saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just walk. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. Now, worded this way, I'm all in with Paul. Isn't that something? Like the other translation, I'm like, gosh, you're wearing yourself out. I don't know if that's what we're called to do or not. Flip the translation just a little bit, tweak it up just a little bit, and I go, hmm, okay. I'm still not positive it's a mandate, but I sure do think this is a pretty good formula for how you're going to be able to approach the world around you, maybe make a difference in someone's life. You're not, don't take up the pretense that you're going to make a difference in everyone's life. I think that's where I've messed up as I've thought I'm going to make a difference in every person in this room. And that never happens. I don't care how small the room is <laughs> or big, but what you can do is be relevant to someone in that room. And then that becomes way more important than spreading yourself out to try and reach everyone. Because there's a real good chance that I could hit everyone in this room. I could get you, I could give everyone that's literally and physically in this room right now. There is something I could say that would really move you. The problem is, is I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, I don't know where you are today. Like your minds might be drifted. You might be really locked in on scripture. You might not have read your Bible in three days. You might have been, you might have had a bad night. You might, we bring a bunch of stuff to the table and we do this every time we come together. You do this all the time. This isn't condemning. This is just who we are. We bring our stuff and sometimes we're really focused. And, and we're locked in and we want to talk about Jesus and we got a couple scriptures that's really burning on our hearts and we, we got a prayer request and we want to get a hold of God. And other times it's like we just barely made it. Our minds are somewhere else. We're half asleep. We're thinking about grocery lists and paying bills and that's life. And so how are you going to reach that guy? Um, how are you going to reach that woman? That's why we, sounds like a cop out, but it's, it's the best we got. That's why we just rely on the Holy Spirit of the Lord you got to do something in that person. I don't know what they need. So I think it's exhausting to try and feel like you've got to be something for everybody. But I do like this take that what I do is keep my bearings in Christ, enter your world, try to experience it best I can through the way you live it. Hopefully, if I can do that, I can make some sort of relevant difference in your life. Okay, well, just magnify that to the whole church then, not just Paul. Maybe the whole church. Maybe our attitude should be, what if we were able to look at it through the eyes of other people? What if we were able to see their lives a little bit? What if we were then able to tweak what we do when we're around them knowing the kind of lifestyle that they live? Well, I can tell you if you do that, they're going to call you a progressive church. In the modern church world, they're going to call you progressive. And that's fine in some places because what we think is actually better is be exactly what you are, appeal only to the people that like that, and everybody else can go find church somewhere else. And we are what we are. And we're right because if we were wrong, we'd go somewhere else. I'm trying to, I'm trying to pitch the other side here for a second. Grant, I hope you can see what I'm doing. Because if you play the Pauline game too far, a lot of the church world's not going to want anything to do with you because it's one thing to stand up for your principles. It's another thing. It's another thing if you actually become a servant of the loose living immoralists, you know? It's another thing. If you actually become a servant of the loose living immoralists, 
what did you have to do to get there? And that becomes a problem. Um, so I'm not talking about something that's going to be practically implementable in the pulpit of the local church. And so there is a part of this that we have to take on our own responsibility, that this is how I'm going to treat my neighbor. But my big question is then what does that look like over the broad body of the church? Let me give you a Paul story, okay, to, to bring this home. And we go back to our book of Acts because that's where we've been taking our church stories. Now, I told you about the midpoint of the book of Acts. The book of Acts takes a turn and it just follows Paul pretty much to the end of the book. You get a little bit of others here and there, but it's basically Paul's story. And so by the time you get to Acts 21, um, the chapter opens with Paul's friends telling him, listen, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen to you. And Paul ignores them. He even has a prophetic word go out in the early part of the 21st chapter that says, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to take you in prison. They're going to give you over to the Gentiles. And Paul says, hey, I ain't scared. And he goes to Jerusalem and they arrest him and hand him over to the Gentiles. And it's exactly what the prophecy said would happen. And so great debate at the first part of Acts 21 is, was Paul stubborn and hard-headed? Should he have listened to the prophetic word and not went to Jerusalem? Um, I don't have the answer. I don't know if he should have or not. Um, I know that we, what we do has consequences. He went, he got arrested. But something worse happened. See, getting arrested is nothing for Paul. Big deal. These guys considered persecutions and sufferings puts them on par with Jesus. Like, if you arrest me and then beat me half to death, he goes, that's good because they killed my Lord. So I'm in good company. But as far as Paul's concerned, something worse happens because when he gets to Jerusalem, He's confronted with his own message of preaching to Gentiles and preaching to Jews. Now, I've told you this before, before we read it. I'll tell you this again. Paul tends to be a guy who's really brassy. He talks a big game. And then sometimes we watch Paul be confronted with that brassiness and that big game. And Paul doesn't act the same in person as he does on paper. And I wonder if that plays in at all to whether, to the prophecy that he had of whether he should have went to Jerusalem. With all of that in mind, watch this story unfold in Acts 21, 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders that were present. Now, Paul and James are a couple of conflicting characters in the New Testament pantheon of of legends. James writes his own little letter. This is James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, writes his own little letter and seems to have a, a, a fairly large following of law-abiding Jewish-centric Christianity that have accepted Jesus as Messiah, but they maintain their Judaism. Paul, on the other hand, is a Jew by birth in that he was born into a Jewish house and then observed what we would call Judaism. But then he accepted Jesus as Messiah, and then he began to take a machete to his old Jewish roots. And he just began to cut off the things that identified him with Judaism. And the gospel that you know today could have went James's way, which is accept Jesus and the law, but it didn't. It went Paul's way, which is accept Jesus free from the law. And it, there's this hard split in the book of Acts. So this is one of those interesting moments where those two principal characters come together. This would be the scene in the movie where the two main 
characters have the, have another moment where you know two ships passing in the night kind of thing. But this confrontation is going to be pretty telling. All the elders are present as well. Now they've got Paul right where they want him. They've got him in the room, and so they've got something to say to him. 19. When he had greeted them, he told in detail the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Of course he did. That's Paul's game. He's going to talk about, listen, what God's doing among non-Jews, man. I'm watching God do great things. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. So their point is a lot of our Jewish brethren are coming into this faith. They're believing Jesus as their Savior and they're zealous to do the law now that they've met Christ, 21. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Look at this accusation. What we're hearing is that you're out here teaching people that they ought to forsake. That word forsake, by the way, um, is the Greek word apostasize, which is where we get the word apostasy. And, and so they literally are saying, you, we are hearing that you are, um, you're preaching an apostasy from Moses. You're preaching a complete separation from the things of Judaism. We ought not even circumcise our kids. We ought not walk according to the customs of Judaism. That's a pretty straightforward accusation right there. What do you think Paul's going to say? Now, you've probably read Acts 21, so you might have a pretty good idea of what he's not going to say. But if you've read Galatians, how does he feel about circumcision? He's not, he's not real big on it. <laughs> in fact, Paul in Galatians goes, if you circumcise, you've got to keep the whole law. He goes, if you get circumcised, Christ is made of no effect to you. He goes, so there you go with that. Pretty straightforward. I mean, Galatians is not pulling any punches, if you've read Galatians. So that's the Paul I think is going to come out right here. That's the beast that's going to answer, right? 22. Uh, actually, not 22. Stay right there for a moment with this thought. I want to take you to the Corinthian letter just to show you what Paul thought about Moses. I already told you what he thought about circumcision. Watch how he thinks about Moses. Then we're going to come back. 2 Corinthians 3.17. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, his glory was passing away, wouldn't the ministry of the Holy Spirit be much more glorious? He calls the ministry of Moses the ministry of death. That's pretty pointed. The face of Moses is covered with a napkin because of the glory, but it's only covered, he said, because the glory was leaving. And Moses didn't want anyone at the bottom of the mountain to know that the glory was leaving. So Moses is putting a... This is Paul talking. Moses actually puts the veil over his face, not because God's glory is so bright it'll burn your eyes out, but because it's not as bright every step he takes. The glory of the law fades slowly over time, and Moses didn't want you to know that. Verse 9. If the ministry of condemnation, he doubles down. The law is not just the ministry of death. The law is the ministry of condemnation. If you preach the law, you'll be condemned. How could you not? You're going to break it. The moment you break it, you get condemned. The ministry of condemnation used to have glory. Well, then the ministry of righteousness has much more glory. Even what was glorious was not glorious in this respect because the glory of the righteousness excels. So the glory of legalism in all of its glory could never hold a candle to the glory that comes to you through the righteousness of the Holy Spirit. And as if that's not pointed enough, 
Next verse. If what is passing away was glorious, what remains is more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. 13. Unlike Moses, that coward. Go back a screen, Brian. Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. I wish they hadn't broke the verse up right there because the power drops out of it because we quote these one verse at a time. So try not to see it as a verse break. Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses. Unlike Moses what? Moses didn't use great boldness of speech. That coward put a veil over his face so you wouldn't know that the glory was fading out of, out of what he had. I know I threw the word coward in, but what else are you going to come up with here the way Paul words this? I'm bold in the way I talk, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses covered himself up so you wouldn't realize it wasn't as powerful when he got to the bottom of the mountain as it had been when he was at the top of the mountain. But their minds were blinded. So they were being tricked in their eyes, made to not realize that the glory was fading. But it didn't matter because their minds were blinded. And until this day, the same veil remains unlifted when you read the Old Testament because the veil has been taken away in Christ. Man, you can't get much more pointed than this. Paul doesn't believe in law but living for righteousness. He doesn't believe that there was glory in Moses' way of doing things. And if you couple that with the Galatians letter, he doesn't believe too much in circumcision either. Let's read out this thing. 15. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lives over, lies over their heart. Nevertheless, when you turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. So you're never going to be free, he said, under Moses. Never going to be free under Moses. It's impossible. You want to be free? You're only going to be free where the Spirit of the Lord is. But we, we don't have a veiled face. We behold as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And it's happening by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is doing this transformation in our life. Now, take that information. Go back to the story in Acts. They had been informed. I read, I'm rereading this verse on purpose because I wanted to drop you right back to the end so you can watch big old bold Paul. Because what did he tell you? We're not like Moses. We're bold. Here's what they said. You've been, we've been informed that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Here comes big, bold Paul, 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. This is the Nazarite vow, 24. Take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses so they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So we got these four guys, go back, fulfill the Nazarite vow. They've, made, they've promised themselves to the Lord. This is an old Jewish rites of the, Nazarene, the Nazarite. They shaved their head. They've given themselves over to God. The old Nazarite vows, they haven't touched. They don't touch liquor. They've given themselves over to the Lord as sort of a special service. He goes, if you'll go participate with them, that will send people the message that they're wrong. That's not the way you think. And that you're orderly and you keep the law. Does that feel like Paul to you? So surely Paul's about to throw the hammer down. Next verse. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Remember that? Acts 15, 
there it is again. They go, this is all we want Gentiles to do. We're not wanting them to, none of that other stuff. This is it. That's all we ask. 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with him, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Paul doesn't lower the hammer. What does he do? He takes the Nazarite vow. He takes these four dudes into the temple and he does exactly what they told him to do, knowing that by doing it, he was saying, you guys are wrong. It's not what I preach. It's not what I believe. So I throw you a massive knee-buckling curveball right here at the end. Mr. I become all things to all men is faced with an opportunity to become all things to all men and he takes it. Because maybe becoming all things to all men is not always the thing you should do. I believe him. Paul lives, Paul lives 1 Corinthians 9 right here. I'm a chameleon and I do what room I'm in. I do what I need to do. You need me to be a legalist? I won't be a legalist. You need me to be anti-law? I'm going to be anti-law. You need me to be weak? I'm going to be weak. You need me to be lawless? I'm going to be lawless. And while that tilts towards man, we need to do all we can to reach people where we can reach them. There's a really dark side that so, to me that shows up in Acts 21. When Paul has an opportunity to take a real stand for the message of grace and instead just walks right away from it to fulfill this idea that he needs to be all things all men. Now, my question to you is, do you think that the Apostle Paul was right in saying, I've become all things to all men? Do you think that that is a mandate for the church? Do you think it ever becomes a problem to become all things for all men? Consider them. Consider these verses. Consider these stories. Consider these questions. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we can open these scriptures, wrestle them out, see both sides, even in the same text, we can literally fall on one side or we can fall on the other. And I don't know exactly what that means to each person, but Father, what it says to me is that the early church had some growing to do and maybe we are still the early church. Maybe we still have some growing to do as well. And wherever we need to wrestle this out, Father, teach us and show us. We're not looking for a place to land our feet tonight. We're just trying to ask better questions. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.